0: From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and you know, here's how we're going to start. Let's just, you know, not for any reason, but just because this is a great song. This is The Spinners, Love Me or Leave Me. This is just good. It's just good. This is from Pick of the Litter. When you have tried to give your all You try to stand and then you fall There is no crutch for Just the best music. If you don't like that, you don't like ham and cheese. In any case, on this episode, I want to, as I'm doing increasingly lately, because I really do enjoy it, I want to address a question that a lot of you ask me, because it actually ties into something that I should have done a show about anyway, which is how do we know what words were like in this Proto Indo European language that I'm always talking about? having been reconstructed. And that actually ties into the larger issue of what was the first language like? What do we know about that, if anything? And so where does all of this come from? But you can start in the middle with what is this proto-Indo-European? I'm always talking about this language that was spoken 6,000, maybe 8,000 years ago, but almost certainly 6,000 on the steppes of Ukraine. And it spreads out to become almost all the languages of Europe and a great many languages in Iran and India. Proto-Indo-European, and I'll often spit out some word that we know was pretty close to what that original word was. Well, how do we know? And it's the kind of thing where, you know, one person asks me and I think, well, I don't know, I'll get to that sometime. And then after a while, I realize a lot of people are wondering that. Well, let's, let's do that. Let's actually do that because that endeavor was foundational to establishing what today is known as linguistics. And the idea is that you can reconstruct What a language was like that nobody ever wrote down by comparing all of the languages that that language has since become. So as you know from listening to me, all language, even the language I'm using right now, is always changing. And often it changes among different groups of people who are widely separated geographically. Next thing you know, you have different dialects. And next thing you know, after that, you've got completely different languages. Latin is one language. After a while, it's French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, Romanian, and all the others. That's how it goes. Latin happens to be written down. But suppose it wasn't. Actually, we could reconstruct a lot of what Latin is like just by comparing French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, Romanian, and the others. And when you use that principle, you can actually reconstruct the language that gave birth to Latin and a bunch of other ancient languages such as Sanskrit and Old Persian. And that's how we know ultimately what this proto-Indo-European was like. Of course, it's ultimately a very elegant and rigorously policed guess and almost certainly is wrong to an extent, but by no means all wrong. So, for example, you're on the steppes of Ukraine and it's 6,000 years ago and you've got this culture that has chariots and Metal and horses, they've been dug up. They're called the the Yamna people, and we can pretty much know that they were the proto-Indo-European speakers. We don't know what they called their language, probably never will. But what would they call a father? Well, we can't hear them saying it because they could only say it. They didn't write it down. They had a society, but it wasn't one that depended on writing. It's almost surprising from our perspective how advanced a civilization can get without writing. They didn't have it, and we can't hear them. They're just too dead. But we do know that their language became several dozen that are now spoken in other places, and you compare. So, for example, father, there's one rendition. Now, father in Latin was pater, okay? And you can hear a likeness between the two, father pater. So, the P became a F, Father, pater, t, the, you can see the relationship in spelling. And then, you know, father, pater, it's the same thing. Now, how about, say, Sanskrit, where one of the words would have been pita. So, pita, it sounds kind of like Betty Davis, except you kind of bump her on the back while she's saying pita. And so she says pita. So, pita. Well, there's no R, but still, pita, that's kind of like the pot in Latin. Kind Of a stretch to father, but still, father, pater, pita. Those things all came from one thing, and if you've got a richer data set than that, you can get pretty close to what the original would have been. So, in Old Irish, the word is author, the consonant just dropped off the front, but author, you know, sounds kind of like father. In Albanian, the word is atta, not pater, but just atta. The P and the R are both gone, but you've still got the middle. Then in German, you have fater. Of course, German has that deep voice. Armenian has higher. Now, that doesn't sound much like pater. But then you have h, and a h can come from, say, a f. So, for example, think about if you've mucked around with the Romance languages. You have the verb for to do or to make in French, and that's fair, or Latin facere. Well, in Spanish, it's Hacer, and you know from the spelling that it was originally haser. That's because a f can become a h. So, not an accident that we say father, and then there's another one of these descendants of Proto Indo European where it's higher. And higher isn't that different from other or ater or eta, really. Then, say in Persian, you've got petar. And you're trying to decide, well, what was the original word? Now, one of the shorter ones is Albanian. Albanian has the atta. Okay. If atta was the original word, then you have to explain why in so many different places a p popped up at the beginning you know why not a k why not a p-? you know why p and then you have to figure out why in so many places this r thing popped up at the end father pot and the thing is maybe there would be some kind of rust that would grow at the front and at the end but you have to explain why that would happen in so many widely separated places much more logical is that something started as something like pater, and it lost its front and it lost its back. And so, in some places, you've got things like author or atta. And that means, what was the first consonant of it? So, was it p as in pater? Was it f as in father? Was it higher as in Armenian? What was it? Well, as these things go, usually it's a consonant like p, one of the ones that I'm going to allow us to call hard for these purposes, that becomes something hissier, like a f or a huh. So you start with a put, and then after a while, the put devolves into being something like a fu or a huh. So put was probably first. And then really, you've only got these Rs at the end. And that means and there's some details about figuring out the vowels that I will not torture you with. But that means that we can know that the word the people used on the steps of Ukraine was something like pater, pater. You can just reason that out based on looking at all the words. So you just go sound by sound and you reconstruct an old word. It can be kind of like love. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone. One that you adore can love is all that I can give to you. Love is more than just a game for two. Two in love can make it take my That, of course, was Nat King Cole singing the grand mid-20th century pop tune L-O-V-E. And, you know, let's think about love. We say love. Old English was lufu. In Russian, you have something like lubit, In Sanskrit, lubyati. Then we have a word like libido. In Albanian, the word is lüp. So, what was the original word for love looking at things like that? Well, you can tell that it began with a l. And we have love now, but we started with u. And then Russian has the Lubit and Sanskrit has the lyubyati. And then Albanian has the lyub, which is kind of like it. So probably it was something ooey. And then what was the consonant? Well, we have v now, but we used to have f. And a f often becomes a v, so you can trace it back to a f. But then Russian has lyub beat, and Sanskrit has lubyati, and then we have that word libido, which, you know, that can just apply to general energy about life. It doesn't have to be about the bedroom. I actually didn't know that until about a month ago. Your general libido that you really like playing Monopoly or, you know, reading books about 1920s Broadway musicals or something, all of that is libido. In any case, Albanian ends with a pu so lup. All right. But sometimes a buh can turn into a *pu*, And really, the buh kind of wins here. So we can know that the Proto-Indo-European word for something like love or liking a lot, probably, was roughly lob, lob. It does sound kind of like *lube*, but that's just an accident. All sorts of cases like that. And so a great many words have been reconstructed based on that process, to the point that you know, with your tongue in your cheek and hoping nobody's looking over your shoulder, you can reconstruct what a proto-Indo-European sentence was. There's a limited number of subjects, but you can have a whole sentence that probably one of those people in that culture would recognize as their language if they kind of gritted their teeth and listened closely. You'd sound probably like somebody with some sort of serious you know, circulation problem in their brain, but they would probably recognize what you were saying. That's the kind of work that's been done. But that only takes us back six, seven, eight thousand years. That's how you reconstruct earlier stages of language that don't happen to have been written down like Latin and Sanskrit were. And of course, the question becomes most people who hear about the reconstruction of Proto-Indo-European start wondering, well, can you take it further back? And the answer is yes, people have done that. In the case of taking it back from Proto Indo European to something earlier, the idea being that there's Proto Indo European, then there are other language families, and you take their reconstructed proto languages and you trace even further back. Yes, people have done it. They have tended to be Russian often, which means that there's a certain kind of music that's appropriate to the effort, appropriate partly because of the Russianness and also because I think most linguists in the world don't pay this enough attention. So there's a sadness. This is Moment Musical in B Minor by Rachmaninoff. It is also one of the most achingly beautiful pieces of classical music I know. Listen to this. Isn't that good? Doesn't that sound like the way you felt when things were really at their worst in kind of a self-indulgent way? You know, a breakup or something like that. Isn't that just it? That is the evocation of a cloudy day. You know, there are people who have reconstructed that there was some proto-language proto, proto language spoken probably in the Fertile Crescent, about 8,000 B.C., so we need to go back 10,000 years for this one. And the idea is that, well, there's Proto-Indo-European. What about other families that you can trace back like that? And can you use their proto-languages? So the Uralic family, Uralic always sounds like a disease, but Uralic is Finnish and Estonian and what used to be called Lapish, now it's called Sami. And it's also Hungarian there is a Proto-Uralic that has been reconstructed. So what was the ancestor to them? Then there's proto afroasiatic Within that is the Semitic languages like Hebrew and Arabic that are pretty familiar. Then others, the language that the people in hieroglyphics were speaking was not Arabic yet. They were speaking an Egyptian language, which is quite different. They're the Berber languages of northern Africa. There's Hausa in Nigeria. All of that is the Afro-Asiatic family. Well, there's some things we can say about proto afroasiatic you can reconstruct. The Georgian language, and I don't mean Southern, as in a couple of shows ago, but thank you, by the way, everybody, for the mail about the Southern show. I've really been tickled by a lot of the things people have sent. But I'm talking about Georgia, Georgia, as in Georgia, where Dan and Yogurt used to have people running around because they were tall and they were like 117 years old. So Georgian is a language that's one of a little passel. It's a small family. It's called, I'm not even going to tell you what it's called, but you can reconstruct the proto-language there. Then if you know anybody who speaks Tamil, that is not related to Hindi and Gujarati and Marathi and the gang. That's part of a whole other family, also spoken in India called Dravidian. And so you have that, and then Turkish and its friends, and then Mongolian, and Mongolian has friends. That is part of a family called the Altaic family. Some people believe it isn't a family, but, you know, I'm going to pretend that isn't true. The Altaic family. There's a proto-Altaic that you might... Want to reconstruct, or at least some of Altaic has been reconstructed, or subsets of Altaic have had their ancestral sub languages reconstructed. So, if you take all of that together, all that together, you take all those proto languages and then apply this backwards reconstruction technique again, maybe you are reconstructing an ancestor that would mean that all of these families belong to a superfamily which has been titled Nostratic. And when you do that, you find some likenesses that really are unlikely to be accidental. There's some linguists that just poo-poo the whole enterprise. But I'm not sure they have seen enough Disney movies or smoked enough weed. They don't, they they lack imagination or they don't like it when things are fun. I'm not sure what it is. But, for example, the word I, as in, you know, you, he, she, and I. Proto-Indo-European, one word for that, although we're going to make a switch in terms of case, is me. You can imagine that if you've taken French, Spanish, anything Indo-European, you know that first-person singular, there's a kind of a a me complex. So, me. Well, you know, when you reconstruct proto-Uralic, and you're talking about Finnish and Estonian. And just because Finns are Scandinavians, don't think that there's some close relationship between Uralic and Indo-European. They're completely different. Finnish is nothing like Swedish and Norwegian. Yet, reconstruct the ancestor of Finnish and Estonian and Hungarian in a bunch of languages most of us haven't heard of, spoken in Siberia and thereabouts. And you get me. To the first-person singular. If you reconstruct what the Georgian proto-language was, you get me. And these languages are completely unrelated to Proto-Indo-European or Uralic. If you reconstruct Afroasiatic, going back from Hebrew and Arabic and Hausa and Berber and Egyptian and all the rest, you get me. With all of them, you get me. That suggests that there was some original language where the first person singular was me, and it passed it on to all these families, and pronouns have a way of holding on longer than just about anything else, and there you go. Or the word who, even something a little more general than pronouns, who. Proto-Indo-European's word for who was probably something like ko, okay? Uralic, you do the same thing, and what was the Proto-Uralic word for who? Ko. What was the Afroasiatic word for who? Then you go way off into Siberia. You've got a small group of languages, if you call two, a group called Nyukahir. And, you know, what their common word for who is kin. Then the language is spoken by the Inuit. You can reconstruct what the original Inuit language was. And one of their words for who was ken. So that can't be a coincidence. And if you look at all of these things, it's reasonable to suppose that there was once a word that would have been roughly k'o, k'o and that would have been who and that was passed down but you know there're only so many nostratic words that one can reconstruct there's so many things that have been lost so for example even within indo-european there's no pater type word in the slavic languages for some reason they just end up using different roots for father and that same pater pater thing isn't in nostratic you don't find any root like that in uralic and afroasiatic and all the others it just pops up in Indo-European. So the nostratic words in common, it's a smaller collection and in some ways less interesting. So for example, the reconstructed word for father isn't something like tutur, but it's abba. But, you know, that that doesn't matter, because if you remember one show that I did a long time ago, the word for mother tends to be something like mama, because that's the very first thing that an infant does with its mouth. And the caretaker who hears that is likely to think of it as their name and start using it that way. And then the child thinks of it that way. Next thing you know, mama is the word for mother in way too many very separate languages for it to be an accident. Well, one of the next things that a kid is going to do with their mouth is to do something like papa or abba. Sometimes it's tata or dada. But whatever that next thing is, that becomes the word for father. So abba being the word for father in the that could just be an accident. And it gets to the point where when you're looking at different languages or different reconstructions, you have to be very careful deciding how significant these resemblances are. Because there's an extent to which they're just coincidences. And you have to get a horse sense. You have to decide what is really an indication that there was an ancestor Versus what is just an accident. So like in Japanese, the word sagaru, which is spelled sagaru, means to hang down. It just does. The word taberu, that is to eat, and it looks like the word for table. The word miru is the word for to look, and it looks like mirror. Hito means man, but it also looks like he, because a man could be considered to be a he. The word for name is namai. The word for like that is so, and on and on and on. You can do a whole list of words like that. All of that is just an accident. And so the truth is that once you get to nostratic, you're dealing with the problem that the signal is fading. So much change has happened. Everything has transformed so much that it gets harder to know what was going on 10,000 years ago because so much would have changed in so many places in so many ways since then. Signal is fading, and I'm going to use this as a forced lead-in to the next song because you know when the signal is fading, the connection is wearing out, and you haven't wanted to admit it and I cannot think of a pop song, at least that I liked, that got in that stage of a relationship as beautifully as Huey Lewis and the News's, yes, them, highly underrated their sports album, their four masterpiece songs on that album. There, This Is It. This was a much more special song than I remember anybody giving it credit for. I wasn't reading the rock and the pop critics, but this song was minor art. Here it goes. 1984 summer I was working in a seafood market you weren't allowed to sit down but boy that song reminds me of purple rain drinking jolt cola and not having sex what all of this means is that if we're going to talk about what the first language was well we've got some problems because really human beings may have been speaking for 300 effing thousand years We used to say 200, but at this point, you know, Homo sapiens has been found in Morocco. And if speech is a hallmark of our species, people may have been speaking for that long. So when we're talking about the first language, we're not talking about some little 6,000 years, not even 10,000. We're talking about change that has been going on forever. Think of a kaleidoscope. And so to reconstruct the original, you've got to make a pretty strong case. And I'm not sure that case can be made. There is a small coterie of scholars who've tried to reconstruct what they call proto-world. Merritt Rulin has been the leader of that effort. And I have great respect for Merritt. I love what he's interested in. I love his argumentational methods. He's right, in my view, about a lot of things. But the proto-world idea, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's sexy. So, for example, based on their reconstructions, we can know that the first word for one was apparently teak. Got that? Teak. Or the first word for two was pal. So maybe there were these kids rolling around in Africa on the savannah, and instead of saying one, two, three, they were saying teak pal, and I forget what three was if they've reconstructed it. But it's a nice idea. But you know, the evidence that it's based on is hard to see as being as solid as the kind that can lead you back to something like Proto-Indo-European Pater. So for example the word for most of the native american languages in north and south america a few not included including the inuit ones and also some like navajo but the vast majority of native american languages original word for water based on this method is supposed to have been aqua and yeah that seems a little weird considering that that's what it still is in italy but you know stranger things have happened but aqua but you know first of all that's really only what they reconstruct for one sub Family of this supposed Native American family. It's just the Algonquian languages like Cree and Ojibwe and Powhatan and Fox and various deeply interesting languages, but that's just some languages. But let's even say that Aqua really was the original root. The problem is that Rulin and his colleagues have looked. At words that might be products of this original aqua all over Native American languages in North and South America. And really, the likeness seems to be so broad that it's hard to say that we should really be convinced. And so, from various languages, you have, as supposed descendants from aqua, words like uk, yok, ha, aha, ku'u, yaku, ukumi, ochi, and the idea seems to be roughly that there are all these words that have a vowel on one side and a vowel on the other side and something in between that's kind of like k or g, So something like ook, but that's a little too general, especially because these words don't just mean water. Some of them do, but just as many mean things like drink, swim, lake, you know, he is imbibing wet. It all just gets a little unsystematic. I mean, in Estonian, you know, I just happen to have an Estonian dictionary handy. I carry it around with me. You never know who you're going to meet in New York. The word for river is Estonian has a very sweet, quiet voice. And so I have to do Estonian voice is Yergi, Yergi. That's the word for river. So there's one of those things. And so if Jörg, ha, and Yakup are words for water, then what about Yergi? Because it's the same thing. It's got the little g in there and the two verb with the y. Yeah. But Estonian is not related to these. You can What I mean is you can... No, I don't carry around Estonian dictionary. You can grab any dictionary from yourself and find a word like that that connotes something about wetness. And so really here, there's a little bit of lumping going on beyond even what I prefer. I'm not a splitter. I'm a lumper. But we're overgeneralizing about these languages. We're, we're denying their individuality. Rogers and Hammerstein understood this in one of their lesser but still charming shows, Pipe Dream. We want to listen to them telling us about how it takes all kinds of people to make up a world. Why am I playing this? Because the guy singing it, his name was Bill Johnson. What a magnificently unmemorable name. But he had one of the best voices on Broadway in the 20th century. He wasn't recorded enough, but really excellent instrument. Listen to him here in mono. He died at 40, and so we didn't get to hear more from him but this is really one of my favorite voices of the type this is all kinds of people from pipe dream in 1955 it takes all kinds of people to make up a world all kinds of people and things they crawl on the earth they swim in the sea and they fly So I don't know what we can say about actual words in the first language. But what can we know about the first language? Well, for one thing, it would have been very complicated, especially after a while. It would have had lots of prefixes, lots of suffixes, lots of irregularity, because that's what languages tend to end up like. Unless somebody interferes with that happening. So we shouldn't think of it as being some kind of quote unquote caveman language that was simpler because they didn't have iPhones and dominoes and string theory. No, not at all. It would have been a fearsomely complex language. It's the sort of thing that's happening all the time. Talk about word shortening. And so in Albania, this pater word becomes just ata. That is one thing that happens. But as I always say, languages are always creating new material by scrunching words together. The two processes operate at the same time. And so, for example, the ed past suffix like walked, that probably started as something that meant did. It would have been walk did, technically in Proto-Germanic, but you get the point. Walk did becomes walk good. That sort of thing is happening all the time. Nowadays, we say, oh, look, there's a gray-ass squirrel. Well, gray-ass is practically a suffix where the word for buttocks has actually become an indicator of the counter expectational. So it's a squirrel that I didn't expect to be gray. It's a gray-ass squirrel. Words are coming together. Any language that doesn't have that kind of proliferation of prefixes and suffixes when all of its relatives do, it's usually because something happened to it. And the something that happened was that a bunch of adults had to learn it for some reason. And so they just made it a little easier. So Old English was a language a lot like Latin. All that stuff that makes it hard for us to learn Latin and Greek. The language I'm speaking now is not like that because Vikings beat it up. Vikings came to England, they spoke shitty English, they passed it on to their kids, and I am now speaking shitty old English. Mandarin has four tones. All the other Chinese languages have more. That is almost certainly because Mandarin is the creation of people who spoke all sorts of Chinese and all sorts of other languages learning what Chinese there was in the region where Mandarin arose. Old Persian was a language with so much stuff in it that you almost can't imagine human beings speaking it. Modern Persian is a lot like English in that way. It's because Persian was a language of empire. So that first language would have been scary. I mean, in a good way, it would have been very complicated, full of irregularity, hard for us to learn. By no means some sort of bunga bunga old cartoon, quote unquote, primitive language. Languages spoken by indigenous cultures tend to be more complicated than what we're used to. Not less that original language may have had clicks actually and what i mean by that is that the people who speak click languages today in southern africa are the first people they are the earliest Homo sapiens of the ones that are around today in terms of genetic analysis. Now, it could be that the cliques emerged much later than at their origin, but it could also be that the clicks go way, way back. We hear the language now and we think, what are those clicks doing there? When really what may have happened is that as language moved to other places with groups of people who migrated out of Africa, the languages lost the cliques. So it may be that the clicks are original and that the real question is why don't we have clicks, not why do they? Have clicks. Here are some things that sound like clicks in a Stephen Sondheim song from *Follies* called "Rain on the Roof." This is Betty Comden and Adolph Green. You'll see what I mean. Rain, rain, don't go away. Fill up the sky. Rain through the night, we'll stay cozy and dry. Listen to the rain on the roof go baby pat, click, click, click. Pity that it's not a hurricane. Lovely rain. That's from the 1985 concert. And those little kisses, to me, they've always sounded like clicks, like all of a sudden Betty and Adolf were black Botswanans for a second. Another thing about the original language is we have to remember that it also would have had casualness about it. Just because it was a long time ago doesn't mean that it sounded like a Miklos Russia score. It was a language spoken by real people who were eating and chewing with their mouths open and having sex and not having sex and drinking Jolt Cola. They were ordinary people. And we know that because any language today has aspects that are kind of baggy and casual and more about greasing the social gears than indicating any formal kind of meaning. This is the sort of thing I mean. Let's take some language. That's just the sort of thing that one happens to be carrying around. So, mu'alang. Mu'alang is a language spoken in Borneo. There's an item in mu'alang. If you were learning mu'alang, you would have trouble figuring out a translation for a little word that you hear, it seems like, every 10 seconds. It's ti, ti. Now, what does ti mean? Well, I'll just read for you how it's described and see if it sounds kind of familiar the person who's described this language says, and I'm not going to give this person a silly voice, this is just text. Ti seems to carry a deictic sense. By using it, the speaker's trying to maintain the hearer's attention to what he, she is focusing on. For this purpose, a speaker can even repeat this marker several times within the same clause. So then, the person who described this language gives an example of a sentence in Muolong, where it goes, where I'm going to say it all in English, except for the T. it's... So, as for the story of Putun Kempat, ti, who suffered from the disease, ti... Whenever it was night, she let herself soak in the water. So there's teep, teep. That reminds us of either like or more particularly, this teep is a you know. If you listen to Mualong, people are saying you know, you know, you know all the time. So as for the story of Putun Kempot, you know, who suffered from the disease, you know, whenever it was night, she let herself soak in the water. I wonder what the disease was. But that's what teep is. So Mu'along has it. And so the world's first language would have had things like that too. It would have been actual human language. The first language, we can know what it was like. It was complicated, yet casual. Maybe it had clicks. In terms of whether we can know its words, frankly, the only words in that language we can probably really have a sense of are, you know, mama and papa. There's going to have been something like that in that first language. But, you know, Teak and Paul, probably not. Really quickly, what about the language of the future? And I started thinking that people might want to know about that, partly because I wrote about it once and partly because, you know, I had never really seen The Matrix. Don't shoot me. I, I know it's, it's pathetic. I'd never really seen it. I saw it once, but I was distracted and angry. So I didn't take it in. And So finally, last week, my two movies last week were The Matrix and Gypsy. What? Very different tokens of human endeavor they were. And, you know, the matrix was better. And I was thinking to myself, okay, what would language actually be like? And, well, there won't be as many languages. Probably in 100 years there'll be five or 600 languages still passed on to children. But I know that's not what you mean. What will language be like? And the truth is that a lot of the languages that remain in their spoken variety will be a little less complicated than they are now in their standard varieties. Because what happens when you bring non-native speakers into a place to learn a language is that not only do they often never learn the language completely, but it's been found that sometimes their kids, even growing up in the new place, can certainly use the language of the new place in its full form. But often they'll use a kind of streamlined version of that local language that breaks the rules somewhat of the local language as a kind of marker of identity. And so, for example, in Swedish cities today, there's a kind of Swedish where they don't use the gender as much as you'd expect, where the word order gets a little bit simplified from the sorts of things that Germanic languages do that English doesn't. And these are kids of immigrants, but they're not immigrants themselves. They didn't grow up in the other countries. They grew up in Sweden, and they can speak standard Swedish if they have to, but what they speak among themselves is this streamlined Swedish where the very hardest and most unnecessary stuff is often just gotten rid of. It's like giving Swedish a kind of a shave or a tune-up or aligning its axles, that sort of thing. And you've got that kind of Dutch spoken with that kind of population. You've got that kind of German spoken with that kind of population. It's happening in a lot of places. And you also see it in some places in Africa as well, where people from various places are coming into cities and learning a lingua franca. Their version of it is going to be less needlessly complicated than languages tend to get when they're left by themselves in order to become something like what the first language was almost certainly like. And so, for example, Swahili already in Africa is that kind of language. Swahili is one of a passel of about 500 kittens. They're called the Bantu languages. And Swahili is much, much. Easier than all but a very few of them. The other ones have tone and all this irregularity. Swahili is very user-friendly. If it had a taste, it would taste like Barnum's Animal Crackers. And that's because it's been used by many people who don't use it as a first language, Indonesian is the same thing. If you ever have to learn Indonesian, you won't have to spend that much time to be pretty good at the basics. And that's because it's spoken by native speakers of 600 million billion billion other languages. So naturally, it gets easier. I find it impossible to imagine that there won't be Mandarin dialects like this in cities pretty soon because of people coming from far away and speaking very different dialects of Mandarin. Languages tend to get easier, a little easier in situations like that. So a lot of the few hundred languages that are left will, in their spoken form, be somewhat easier. Very hardest stuff that hangs around at the edge of a language. A lot of that will be gotten rid of in the way the languages are spoken. That doesn't mean that there won't still be a written standard. There won't be a standard used in certain formal situations. But there will be more of what are called by, we pointy head people, multi-ethnolex. Multi-ethnolex, like the sorts of things that are happening in European cities, and some African cities, that's going to happen in more parts Of the world, most likely. So that means that language is going to, to an extent, in addition to being used more casually in more aspects of the public sphere, in general, it's going to let itself go. Like Ginger Rogers singing an Irving Berlin song in 1936 in Follow the Fleet. Ginger Rogers was interesting because, you know, she didn't really have much of a voice. It's hard to believe that she had actually started on stage singing unamplified over orchestras. But because her voice is so approximate and sounds so real, somehow she speaks to us across 80 plus years in a way that most people in the 30s on film now, frankly, just don't. And this is also a very good song. Irving Berlin was good at jazzing in a minor key. Here is Let Yourself Go. As you listen to the band, don't you get a bubble? As you listen to them play, don't you get a glow. If you step out on the floor, you'll forget your trouble. If you go into your dance, you'll forget your woes. So, come, get together. Let the dance floor feel your leather. Step as lightly as a feather, let yourself go. Limber. Loosen up and start to limber. Can't you hear that hot marimba? Let yourself go. Let yourself go. Relax and let yourself go. Relax, you got yourself tied up in a knot. The night is cold, but the music hot so cold. Cuddle closer, don't you dare to answer no sir. Butcher, baker, clerk, and grocer. Let yourself go. I want to do a little, if I may, plug for something that I did. Once you're finished with this, please go take a look at a podcast called A Million Little Gods. And the reason that... I have a personal interest in you taking a listen to it is because there's going to be an episode on it, actually a group of episodes, called, get this, Linguistic Typological Smackdown. And you know what this is? You know how I'm always yammering on about this battle between me and certain other people who study Creole languages about whether Creoles are a kind of language? Well, it's me and and one of them. And he does his bit, and then I do my bit, and then he does his bit, and I do my bit again and the million little gods people have a wonderful preview episode up where you can get a sense of the flavor of it so go look at a millionlittlegods.com and you can listen to linguistic typological smackdown boy i wish i had come up with that title while we're on the subject of 80s hits which we weren't but i just i feel kind of like nostalgic interrupt us i want to go back to If this is it, and we're going to have the wonderful, wailing, plangent guitar solo in the middle. This is so elegiac. It just sounds like time that maybe you're happy you let go, but still wouldn't it be nice to go visit? Here is just the weeping solo in the middle of what was supposed to be just this popcorn song. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com lexiconvalley. The show is edited, as always, by Mike Wolo, And I'm John McWhorter. On etymology, John goes back to Johannes, and that's from Yo-Hanan. Yo-God-Hanan is gracious, yo Now, Johannes have become just Jan, John. John. And then some boob stuck the H back in just because they thought that you had to have the H because there had been an H in Johanna. So the silent H is just stupid. It's like walking around with a tail. Anyway, back to the 80s.